Well, I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to the book of First Samuel. If you uh, don't have a Bible with you, there's some on the ends of the pews there that should be handy for you. First Samuel's the uh, ninth book in the Bible. It's in the Old Testament. And I invite you to turn there to First Samuel chapter 8 as we continue our uh, series through this uh, powerful book. Uh, Samuel, as we have seen, has been leading God's people in Israel for uh, a number of years now, including uh, 20 years, which we've observed fairly recently in our study of the book of First Samuel, where the, the people were lamenting. They were expressing sorrow. Uh, in sadness before the Lord over their shallow recognition of his sovereign holiness. And so we saw that recently as we uh, gathered last week as well. We noticed that there was this uh, paradigm even uh, so many years ago in First Samuel of what we call the gospel waltz, this three-step dance of the Christian faith that didn't have anything to do with the cows dancing up here with the moves. But, uh, but, but this idea of repenting, believing, And seeking, repenting, believing and pursuing, repenting, believing and fighting. However, we want to state that these three steps that uh, mark our lives right up to today or should mark our walk in the gospel. And we uh, saw that more than that, the people were fueled in their pursuit, in their dance, if you will, by prayer. Or we could say they put on the, the dancing shoes of prayer and through that posture of prayer, they were strengthened in their walk with the Lord in that gospel waltz. Uh, we saw as well that as the people of God uh, assume this, what we would call posture of spiritual vitality. So dancing this dance and doing it through prayer, that the Lord was pleased to give them a tangible victory over the Philistines, over these enemies that they had gone back and forth with. And that they, in fact, commemorated that through this landmark stone called Ebenezer. That Ebenezer just means that God is our help. God is the one who does this for us. God is the one who sustains us and gives us strength to live the life that we're called to lead. And we're reminded of that today as well. As we turn today to this passage, we enter a sort of new section of 1 Samuel, which uh, focuses on the Israelites' desire to move from these occasionally appointed judges. Judges in the Old Testament sense are, are just a form of leader, but they would, they would be raised up just sporadically as there was a particular need. They were not a standing leader, uh, typically, and, and they would fight a few battles and so forth, but it wasn't a large-scale centralized operation. We see now the people of God desiring to have a, uh, a king, And in so, in a sense, rejecting God as their king and running a risk that we probably run today as well of putting their hope in earthly human government, earthly human powers and leaders. And so that's the context, the setting for our chapter eight. I'll invite you to read along silently as I uh, read aloud uh, these verses. When Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of the firstborn son was Joel. The name of the second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba, yet his sons did not walk in the ways, uh, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you're old and your sons 
do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you. But they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are also doing to you. Now, then obey their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. He said, these will be the ways that the king will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to chariots and to be horsemen and to run before his chariots. He'll appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and to equip his chariots. He'll take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day, you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. And in the last few verses. But the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but there shall be a king over us that we also may be like all the nations that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel had heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, go every man to his city. Let's pray again. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it speaks to us. And we ask that you would do so through it for our good and for your glory. In Jesus name. Amen. Well, Louis the 14th or. Louis the Great, or the Sun King, as he's alternatively called, ruled over the country of France from about 1643 all the way to 1715. And he was known not only for that incredibly long reign, but also for the type of reign that he had. It can be seen in his remarkable military strength. He fought uh, numerous wars, three large ones in particular for France. And he gathered together as well political power, gathering together the aristocracy under his thumb. And he even gathered power over the religious and spiritual life, putting at bay both the Protestants and the Catholics and consolidating power over the clergy in himself. All of this was exhibited before the people, and we can still even go see it today at the Palace of Versailles. You've probably seen it in movies, if not in person. An unbelievable structure. 
350 individual apartment units uh, are made up into this gigantic, I guess what we would call a sort of luxury hotel facility. It sits on 2,000 acres and about 230 of those are devoted just to the beautiful, ornate, elaborate gardens outside the property. It was a symbol of his power, of his grandeur. And as uh, excessive and sort of overly centralized, perhaps, as this may sound to us as members of a constitutional republic we call the United States of America, uh, this was nevertheless something that was greatly welcomed in the time of King Louis XIV. It was celebrated. It allowed them to have a very significant power, although we would see in it probably a lot of waste, a lot of excess, potential abuses there for the folks in that day. It was for a time a worthwhile trade off. Eventually, if you know a little bit of that history, the end of the 1700s doesn't end so well for the (laughs) French aristocracy and monarchy. Uh, with the French Revolution uh, involving massive killings of those leading. But for a time, again, the French were in favor of all this. And why? For the same reason that the Israelites were excited in their time, uh, many of them, about this idea of having a king. They hoped that in the king they would have some power, have some ability, have some protection that they had not had before, uh, just as if we are honest and willing to search our own hearts, uh, we're tempted to think about our own leaders and rulers right up to today. And this passage reminds us, of course, of the danger of that, that uh, earthly uh, governors, kings, presidents, mayors are, are tangible, right? There is a temptation to put our hope in them because we can see them and they're easier to believe in, in that sense, than the invisible God, who we only see in his actions in the world. Uh, tangible earthly leaders can provide some protection, right? We're watching the news. We're seeing ISIS. We're concerned about our safety. It's natural to want to have some protection there. And God, on the other hand, may seem sort of absent. Where is he in all this picture? These earthly leaders are pretty tangible for us. Uh, Lastly, the government, and we could probably go on, can provide a counterbalance, as we see in our verses today, to some of the injustice that we see in our world and provide that for us, where oftentimes it seems like if God's justice is coming, it's only in the next life. And it's really hard to wait on that, isn't it? As we look at these verses today, it's certainly going to be a little bit like uh, dancing with an elephant. Uh, Maybe dancing with a cow would be similar. You know, somebody's going to get their feet stepped on, probably all of us, and it might hurt a little bit today as we think about this role of our spiritual life and government, regardless of where our perspective is on those political matters. The main idea is this, and you can find it in the back of your worship guide. It's a little bit of a lengthy one, but I think it summarizes what this passage teaches us and is important for our spiritual walk and our life as well as godly citizens in this particular country that we live in. Uh, Since God is the true and righteous, loving king, we should not place hope in human government or ultimate hope in it. 
instead should follow God as ultimate governor. Okay, let's take a look at how that plays out for us, even in these verses. You probably already saw it. These verses will raise eyebrows for both the politically conservative and what we call the politically liberal in our society. As we look at it, it uh, directs some ideas towards those who favor a real minimal form of government and those who favor far reaching government solutions. Uh, The conservative or even the libertarian is going to find support for his cause in the fact that these verses kind of advocate this more decentralized judgeship. And it seems like the people are wandering into this path, even though God is not really for it. And certainly Samuel is not for it. The political liberal will certainly want to uh, recognize that God, nevertheless, ultimately does allow this centralized form of government and even has it for his people for uh, a number of years, even centuries. The political conservative will also note that uh, that God clearly condemns any mentality that tries to replace our, our God and his role in our lives with that of the earthly government or rule. And we'll probably be a little uncomfortable with the scriptures like Romans 13 that speak about the Roman emperor. Talk about centralized dominating power in Romans 13 as, in fact, a servant of God. That's maybe hard for some of us to swallow. And yet the uh, politically liberal, perhaps, that's worried about uh, not enough government will notice that the Uh, Acts and in the book of Acts, Peter and John very quickly respond when they are challenged by the government to quit speaking the gospel, to quit proclaiming the word of God, uh, that they ask rhetorically, should we obey man rather than God? So we see in the scope of scriptures, this issue is raised of what is the place of this government in our life and what is the place of God in ruling over it for our lives? This is important. We all watch the news. We follow these things. We all have strong opinions. What do the scriptures teach about it? Lastly, we see that Jesus himself confronts us in all of this on several fronts. You know, Jesus doesn't say, hey, if you would have liked to elect me, you you know, you're democratically chosen king of the universe and king of my kingdom, then maybe I'll choose to serve that way. No, he says, I am the king of kings and the Lord of lords and all who would come to me should be prepared to submit their lives for me. And yet at the same time, Jesus was rightly viewed in his own time and right up to today as a revolutionary. Because he said it's not the kingdom of this world that is the final thing. There's this whole other kingdom that I'm building outside the rulers and leaders that you see around you. He even summarized it so simply as to take a a little coin in his hand when he was asked about something as practical to each one of us as taxes. How far are we away? A couple of weeks. April 15th coming up. And he held that coin up and turned it over and, you know, noticed the ruler that's on that coin and said, give to Caesar what is Caesar, give to God's what is God's. Jesus spoke to these matters, and so we shouldn't be afraid to speak to them or think about them. And so it's interesting as we zoom back in, kind of get that bigger picture now, hopefully zoom back into our passage. Take a look with me at these verses in First Samuel 8. Uh, all the way verses one through nine, we, we get the picture of the particular issue that's pressing this for God's people. You've got these sons of Samuel 
that are going the same way as the sons of Eli, essentially, that we saw earlier. Now, it seemed like there's some physical distance between Samuel and them. And it seems like Samuel's kind of still personally on track with the Lord. So it's not the same exact scenario as Eli and his sons, but it's similar in that these leaders are failing God's people and their concern. Samuel, you're getting to the end of your tenure. And these are the guys that are going to take over. We're already seeing what they're doing. We need another solution. So you get the picture. And, and the picture is, okay, this thing's being handled too loosely. Samuel, you haven't controlled these folks enough. We need somebody with more power that's going to constrain things. And that's often our response, isn't it? When things get out of hand in our world, we naturally kind of want somebody to come in and step and, and deal with this. Crank, crank down on it and address the issue. So we get that. Okay, we can kind of understand where the people are coming from and their concern. That seems legitimate. But then very quickly, we see something uh, very different. Is going on in the first nine verses, it mentions it. And then all the way at the end in verse 20, it's really clear. They declare no when Samuel is talking to them about this idea of not having a king. And then they say they want the king so that we may be like all the nations. What does that mean? They're chasing after uh, human power. They're chasing after the ways of having human authority and control. And they're hoping in that. They're pursuing it. God realizes this. And so those are the people's reasons that they give. And then in verse seven and, and nine, we see that God says he, he's he's not fooled by all of this. He knows what's really going on. They're really saying, as we often do, whenever we place too much hope, either from our conservative perspective or a liberal perspective and what the government can do for us, that that Jesus is ultimately the hope that God is ultimately the hope. And really, we're rejecting him when we turn in that way. God even says in verse eight uh, to Samuel that, hey, this is kind of a pattern for the people of God all the way back since I brought them out of Egypt. We've been dealing with this scenario. It's not a new thing in their day. It's not a new thing in ours either. So here's an application point for us. You know, we're very inventive. I'm very inventive as a sinner. <laughs> could say a professional sinner because we've all been that way for our whole lives, you know. We're real inventive as sinners at coming up with ways to go other directions besides surrendering to God and really worshiping as our Lord and, and as our, our ruler, our king. We're really good at that. We, we can do that sometimes just by ignoring him, right? That can be one way of doing it. Just, I, don't, I don't really care about God. I don't really want to know what God thinks. Or I know things about God, but I'm going to shut them out. I'm going to tune them out. Uh, we, we can do that as well. Uh, in, in just this way, we can do that by thinking that he can't do the things that he says he can do. We, we do that sometimes when we think there's no way he can really forgive me. There's no way he, he really has power to love me, that he can really do that. We say, no, I, I don't believe that his word of forgiveness is true. We put him in a box like that. We can do that when we sort of wander to other philosophies and perspectives, whatever the latest uh, book is out on the bookshelf that directs us how to think or how to live. That's maybe not entirely in line with the scriptures. And yes, we can do that when we put too much hope in our earthly political leaders and our earthly government. Now, 
you know, the scriptures certainly advocate us being involved in in the scene. So, I, I mean, I think it'd be fantastic if people from our church were not only active in what the, the governance of our community and our state and even our country, but uh, folks who run for office, perhaps, and fill some of those slots, maybe even people from in this midst. So the scriptures say that the government is not problematic in itself, it's problematic by itself. That's the message of the scriptures, that those who are are, are loving and knowing the Lord ought to actually have influence upon it. So we see that there's these reasons the people have for changing to a king. And some of those same reasons probably are in our hearts and minds today as well. Second thing we see is the implications of the change to a king. Uh, Take a look with me at verses 10 through 18. We just read them earlier. Basically, a description of the fact that, you know, those who are in authority are going to use that authority and they're going to need resources to command their authority. And in this play, in this case, switching from the judges to a king and having a sort of standing army. Yes, it's going to give you people of God some benefits and that you have this increased power, perhaps. And you're on caliber, maybe more so with these nations around you. But it's going to take a toll, too. It's going to cost. There's a price to it. And the people of God are reminded of that in these verses. And then lastly, uh, for the sake of our time today, uh, we see that God's planning in his sovereignty, in his wonderful ways, even to work through this seemingly erroneous decision of the people of God. Isn't that interesting? You know, we've just seen these other places in First Samuel where, you know, folks get off track just a little bit in their understanding of God. And he's not afraid to drop the hammer a bit, bring some judgment and discipline on them. And yet in this case, interestingly, God says, well, that's that's not my plan. A that's not really what I'm wanting. And I know, Samuel, you're not wanting it, but we'll go with it. We'll go with what the people would have. And it reminds us that God's in this business of drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. He really is. And as uh, as much as we might look down on the Israelites for their foolishness here, for choosing earthly kings and bowing there instead of really recognizing God's kingship, it's comforting actually to us today, isn't it? That God's in the business in your life and in my life of drawing straight lines with crooked sticks. Because we make decisions and we choose things that aren't in alignment with God. And yet God can still take our lives in the direction that he would desire. And that's true for our whole church body as well. Really, the church is the fulfillment of the Old Testament people of God. That state, uh, nation state of Israel in the Old Testament is really fulfilled in the church today. And isn't that refreshing for us as well? Boy, we don't want to take a false step as a church, but... But isn't it amazing that God can still draw straight lines with the crooked stick of Cross Creek Church and even has been doing that, I'm sure, in our first number of years as a church? Well, here's where this all comes the beautiful and ultimate culmination for us. Turn with me if you've got your Bible handy over to Psalm 2. And I want to read just a couple of verses as we conclude our time. Psalm chapter 2. It's one of these psalms that, of course, had a purpose at the time that it was written about the Old Testament kings. 
and, and, and yet it's uh, purpose and intention to be prophetic, to be looking forward to Christ. The King of Kings and the Lord of Lords is so crystal clear as well. So it's a, a, a Christological psalm in that way. It looks forward. It's a messianic psalm looking forward to Christ. Uh, read these verses and contemplate how they relate to our passage even today, uh, along with me as I read them aloud. Uh, psalm chapter 2. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and their rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. You know, let's break free is what it's saying here. He who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. That's talking about the Lord on his throne. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and will terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I've set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Speaking of the king of Israel, ultimately fulfilled in Christ. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. This is the king speaking. You are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me. I'll make the nations your heritage, the ends of the earth, your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, dash them with pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, talking to the kings of the world, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son. That means embrace him. Lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For the wrath, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Isn't that a magnificent picture? Especially when we put it together with the words of John chapter 18, which will be a great lead into our Easter week coming up very soon. John chapter 18, where we have Jesus before Pilate. And Pilate comes before him in verse 33 of John 18. It says, so Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? Is this your idea, Pilate? Where'd you get this from? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. You remember these Roman officials and the Jewish officials are collaborating in a sense uh, to uh, to end Jesus's. Um, earthly life. What have you done? What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say that I am a king for this purpose. I was born. And for this purpose, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is on the who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, what is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover so that do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again. Not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. And read along with me a couple more verses. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown 
of thorns. Who wears crowns? And put on him and arrayed him in a purple robe. Who wears robes? They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. And then jumping down with me to verse 11, Jesus' words to Pilate, this earthly leader, You would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you rule over all kingdoms and all places. Lord, uh, whatever perspective we come from on the political spectrum, we are easily prone to look to earthly leaders to solve our problem, whether it's military strength that we see the need for or uh, security or whether it's uh, social programs and the benefits of those that we see the need for, whatever it is, Lord, uh, we are prone to elevate that uh, need and the uh, power and ability of earthly leaders to maybe deliver on those needs over you. And we ask, Lord, that especially this Easter season, we would remember that the Lord Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords and that he comes uh, certainly to call us to surrender to him, but in a magnificent way that literally no earthly leader can, that he offers up for us his own life, that he redeems us, his subjects, that he rescues us, that he gives himself for us. Oh, Father, we thank you that we have such a gracious King and Lord in you. We pray, Lord God, that we would have eyes to see how you are ruling and you are reigning, even when we're prone to look in other directions. Encourage us with this truth, we pray in Jesus name. Amen.